Hello and welcome to the Dive Deep, Climb High podcast. I'm Mel Luizu and together with my guests, we explore all different aspects of leadership in higher education. With inspiring stories, practical tips and a little bit of fishiness, this show will help you dive deep into the leader you are and climb high, unleashing your power and potential. Dive deep, climb high, can-do leadership in a world of can't. Today we are going to focus on equality, diversity and inclusion, but probably with more of a focus on inclusion. I first heard my guests speak at a coaching meeting that I'd organised and I was blown away. His ability to talk about a subject that for many of us is still not a comfortable conversation that we have in the workplace was inspiring. And after the meeting, I immediately put a post on LinkedIn sharing the new perspective and understanding that he had given me about this incredibly complicated topic. He's had a fascinating career as a professional actor, decathlon athlete for Great Britain, CEO of a charity, and as an international consultant specialising in inclusion, leadership, personal management and development, and coaching. I am so honoured that he has agreed to be a guest on the show. Please welcome Limbert Spencer OBE. Thank you, Mel. Gosh, what an introduction. (laughs) And thoroughly worthy. I had no clue until I began to do a little bit more research for this podcast episode, just how diverse your career has been and everything that you've done. So perhaps a starting point for today is for you to share a little bit of your journey and give our listeners an understanding of what's brought you here today. Gosh, well, I could take up the entire time with the kind of uh, backdrop, but some key points. I was born in Jamaica came to this country with my parents in 1955 and went to a school in northwest London, a place called Harlesden in Brent, and immediately discovered, because I am very bright and very observant, that everybody else was white. That was the first kind of uh, early sense I had about being different from others around me. Having said that, you know, there were not too many incidents that were problematic. Some were surprising, some were interesting. But by and large, back then, because it was just me, I was the first and only black child in my school, I guess I was a bit of a curiosity rather than a threat. So there was, um, yeah, not, not too many issues in those early days. But that kind of background went to secondary school, gloried in two GCEs, you know, so scholarship wasn't necessarily my thing certainly not back then, and then started work as a, an accountant, a cost and works accountant, five minutes walk down the road from my house. I had two jobs when I left school. I could have gone under articles to become a chartered accountant, but that would have meant getting tube into, into central London. And then this other opportunity, which was a five minute walk down the road. I mean, that was really no, no contest, really. 
So that's how I started and uh, won't go into the ins and outs, but some point during my very short career there, I had the opportunity to audition for a role for a TV drama and got the job and became an actor kind of by accident. But my background, done a lot of amateur dramatics with the Salvation Army and so on. So it was entirely out of my comfort zone, but certainly being an actor had not been on my schedule at that time. So that's something of the early days. Uh, And I went to college, trained in community development, and then uh, had a job, first job in in Scarborough, first real full-time job. And and, and then, well, uh, I was going to say the rest is history, but there's a lot of history within uh, within that piece. So that's something of the background journey. Began to develop and understand things about leadership as I was leading the local community, moved on to work in Manchester a couple of years later in the heart of inner city Manchester, working on issues of of poverty and lack of play space, poor housing. So, you know, it was basically thoroughgoing frontline community work. And I think that that stood me in good stead because I've seen my corporate work simply as working with communities albeit, you know, located in buildings or these days, you know, located in their homes and separated by many miles, sometimes oceans and so on. But that background as a community development worker and community as the key has been focus of my my thinking, really. It's all about community and it's all about enabling the community to be more effective in doing whatever it is that they have got on their agendas. Absolutely. And I think when when I always talk about higher education and, and universities, they are a community. It's, it's a it's a microcosm, I think, of the bigger community. So all of the challenges that go on there go on in this community. And as you say, that could be the same for a very small community. You're bringing people together, people that are different and have different ways of thinking. And, and so, yeah, I love that as a as an approach. How did you take that, I guess, that early part of your career and then work in sort of the broader, well, it's not broader, actually, the corporate world? Yes, I think first step, I suppose, towards that was as I worked, as I say, in community development, first in Scarborough and then for a long time in Manchester, I became more and more involved or engaged with private sector organizations as part of my day-to-day because of obviously connecting with private sector as they existed within the community. And I then had a tap on the shoulder, really, to apply for a job in London to lead an organization called Full Employ, which was concerned with employment issues and minority ethnic communities, how to support and enable and equip them to have a better chance in moving into employment, with particular emphasis on admin and clerical roles, but then also looking at things to do with, with self-employment. And I, I kind of applied for this job uh, and got the job, as it were. And Full Employ was a very special kind of organization in the sense that whilst it was a charity, 
it was very, very strongly connected with and had been the brainchild of, really, the private sector in the sense that there were two guys who had, I think they'd made their money through stockbroking and they were wanting to be very philanthropic in what they were doing and they saw the need. And this was way back, I suppose, way back in the in the mid-80s. So Full Employer would have started in the late 70s. So pretty much ahead of its time in terms of a very specific focus. And they had got very strong sponsorship from a wide variety of private sector organisations. So whilst they used government funding for schemes, you know, you might recall the Manpower Services Commission back in those days and the various youth programmes that they had going, whilst they were used, the core funding and the board was essentially private sector-led. And so I began to experience and get an understanding and working closely with people in the private sector as uh, chief executive of full employee and I had five years there and that was a very fascinating uh, time in terms of my my own personal development and discovered uh, I'm not sure whether I coined the phrase but certainly it was an important one to understand around frontline deviance in the sense of it's all very well the chief executive and I thought I'd arrived by the way I was now in charge of this organization that was national, or probably multi-local is the best way of describing it. Lots of local entities across the country that I was leading and very quickly discovered that just because I sent the memo or said it was so, didn't necessarily make it so. And, uh, and that was very, very, uh, a, a very early lesson for relatively young CEO venturing out in in the business of leadership. What a wonderful transition. And, and I'm guessing that experience has stayed with you as you've spent all of the subsequent years in your consultancy role. So with all that experience, all that knowledge, working with so many different types of organisations and, and people, what does leadership mean for you? Yeah, that's a really great question. I mean, I think I probably nailed it in in terms of the definition that I'm going to share during my formal training as a coach back in the 80s, I suppose. And for me, I ended up with a definition that I put into a bit of a nutshell, and it's an intentional relationship of influence. So it's, you know, you might be perceived by others to be a leader, but for you to be effective, I think there has to be some intentionality behind that. And it's not just about the role or the position. So just because you're the CEO doesn't mean to say that you're a leader. So for me, it's a relationship, first of all, and it's a relationship that is an influential one. So putting that together, you are intentional, you're building relationships, and you're seeking to influence gosh I love that an intentional relationship of influence wow and so anybody any level in the organization can be a leader you might not be the leader but you can be a leader because it's about building relationships and it's about being intentional in terms of what you're wanting to who and what you're wanting to influence as you go on 
Absolutely. And what that is doing is putting the people at the centre, isn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I guess that comes back to the background in community development, because that was very much where I started. So that's uh, clear, more than just a nod back to my early years. And so relevant for the sector that I know and love, education, with students, with staff, with the suppliers, with the community and everybody else that they they have to engage with. So if that's your definition, how does equality, diversity and inclusion feed into that? Yeah, well, it feeds into that for me, because if that's the, without being rude, the bog standard leader, then the inclusive leader, that is about being intentional, having an intentional relationship of influence, the purpose of which is to cause people to consistently feel included. So the basis, you have to be and have intentional relationships of influence. And if you are now concerned about inclusion, your purpose of building the relationship and being influential is to enable people to consistently experience a sense of inclusion. For me, if you achieve that, then everything else is possible. People feel included, which I would define as people feeling respected, valued, trusted, and safe, then they're able to be their best self and do their best work, you know, job done. And this was the learning that I took when I first heard you speak, because it has come from equality, diversity, and then follows inclusion. That feels to me the the journey that we've been on. And for me, and I guess for many organisations, they're focused on that first two, the equality and the diversity. So making sure that we've got equal terms, whatever that might be, making sure that we've got a diverse workforce. That's where the focus has been. And then I heard you speak and it just, it was like that light bulb moment went off, which was around, actually, it's about inclusion and creating environments where people feel included and like you said, valued and respected. And then it becomes much easier, doesn't it? If that is your focus. And I guess in some ways that takes it away from what I said at the beginning about how sometimes we can feel uncomfortable having these conversations in the workplace. Yeah, I mean, you know, I've in recent years been in and out of higher education institutes of one sort or another. Although interestingly, back during my community development training, that was at Goldsmith in London. But recently done a lot of work with two or three uh, universities and specifically working with university staff, professors, people aspiring to be professors, and their concerns about diversity and discrimination. And those concerns are real and appropriate and necessary in many ways. And I don't believe that they are misguided in them. But I think there is, as you were saying, the lack of real understanding that it is about inclusion. And why this gets confused is that 
well, what we've done over the years, and by we, I mean those who would identify as being inclusion, diversity, and quality professionals, we have changed the language. So back when I started doing this work with a vengeance, as it were, both as a, as a volunteer and as a professional, we were talking about equal opportunity and discrimination, right? That was the early thing. Then it became equal opportunity and diversity. Uh, and then more recently, we've been talking about equal opportunity, diversity and inclusion. And for those who believe that they've arrived, they no longer add the equality. They just talk about diversity and inclusion. And for the real avant-garde, they just talk about DNI. But as though it were a thing, right? So how are we doing with DNI? Well, the question is, well, I've no idea because for me it's not a thing. My starting point is how included do your people feel? Because the extent to which they feel, the ones who are already there included, is the extent to which you're going to have the basis for becoming more effective around your diversity agenda. And you can't do that unless there is a framework and a structure and a foundation of equality where people feel that they are all being treated equally well. And so you need to be, we need to just get clearer about our terminology and distinguishing what things are. And, and when I say that to usually prospective or potential clients, they think it all sounds a bit boring, you know, so we're just gonna talk about definitions well, no, we're going to talk about fundamental concepts because how we conceptualize it and what we make it mean determines the actions we take to move forward. And I come across lots of well-meaning, well-positioned organizations and leaders in those organizations who are concerned broadly about this topic. And they are what I call throwing a whole heap of EDI confetti up in the air and hoping some of it comes down. And there's a sense in which when there is any kind of assessment, they're able to reel off all of the things that they've been doing in order to get better at DNI, but without actually fully understanding the distinctions. And I think that that's, that's the missing piece. Uh, and I think it's actually quite simple. It's hard to do, but simple to understand once somebody helps you to position it. And I guess that's what has been my, my mission in life, certainly for the last 20 years, that I've become more, more aware uh, that everybody didn't see it that way. Yeah, you provide clarity. And we talked about this before, that actually, when you start to talk about inclusivity, then it brings in all the other different aspects and actually creating that environment that is inclusive and is encouraging people to thrive actually it doesn't matter whether you're talking about you call it dni which is a new one i'm used to calling it edi so that's a new one for me but also things like well-being as well and how that is and, and mental health i just think it is such a like you say it's nuanced but it's so powerful. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think that there's, there's a danger and has always been a danger around this work and EDI, or I, I sometimes talk about the big idea. So it's inclusion, diversity, equality, action. 
is that we we make it over complex so we come up with new terminology i mean the one that is currently causing me to to smile really is we're now all talking about or others are talking about i don't talk about it i have to say intersectionality as though we've just discovered that human beings are more than one thing duh uh, you know, okay, so it's created a bit of an industry for somebody, you know, lots of things are now being written about being a female, a black female who might also have a disability and be a one parent mother. Well, we've always known that. It's always been the case. And people who have organizations and leaders who have looked at their data well, have always taken account of that. Now we've stuck a label on it as though it's a new discovery. Now, granted, if we're talking now about intersectionality, it might put a light bulb on for mm -hmm. some people. However, it has ever been thus. You know, it's like the old Trotney bit or the 20p coin. You know, we are all multifaceted. And for me, because my focus is about inclusion being about all of us, whenever somebody talks to me about intersectionality, I then say, ah, oh, yes, we're talking about the white, middle-aged, middle-class, Christian, heterosexual male. And if we're not, then why not? Because actually, that's part of the picture. This agenda is about all of us. Yeah. And I think that we've, we've failed to make the kind of progress we could over the last 40 years because we have tended to only be concerned at a strategic level with some of them. I completely and utterly concur with that. Absolutely. And I mean, I don't want to be misunderstood here. I think, you know, we have to be concerned about tackling disadvantage and discrimination. But the context within which that takes place, for me, has to be in the context that this agenda it's all about everybody feeling included. It's not about now including them because we're going to exclude these. And at a tactical level, it makes no sense to approach this in a way that effectively seeks to blindside those who actually have their hands on the powers, on the levers of power. I mean, that's just tactical nonsense. Yeah. So even if we're just thinking tactically, we need to make sure that we keep those with the power, influence, resource, and so on, on side, if we're going to make progress. For me, it's not about tactics. It's about the reality of recognizing that everybody matters. This work is about all of us, not some of them. And it's about everything we do, and not just another thing to do. What manager in a busy organization wants another thing to do? I mean, nobody. <laughs> you are so wise. I'm so in awe. So let's change tact and get into my world for a moment, this fish climb trees world that I live in. When have you, and I suspect there's been many times, but one that you would like to share with the audience, when have you personally had to dive deep? Okay, well, let me... Say, so, I mean, the diving deep, that is interesting. I mentioned that my background's community development and I trained at Goldsmiths College. And I think that there are two or three things that have come out of that. 
Um, the first one was diving deep during my two-year training. This was a you know, uh, professional development training, so it's an adult, early 20s. And our course was certainly for its time, and even if it were now, actually, very, very forward-thinking in that we were creating almost our own curriculum as we went along. And I had said that I had a very strong interest in social policy, human rights, and issues to do with how the welfare system in the UK worked. And welfare rights was top of my agenda. So my tutor said, right, okay, uh, the way we're going to do this is I'm going to arrange for you to run a night school class at Goldsmiths College on welfare rights. I said, okay, thanks very much. So next thing I knew was quite literally, I was running a 13-week night school class on welfare rights at Goldsmiths, where I was training in community development. And so, yeah, I had to dive deep because I was uh, no more than a week ahead of the class in terms of understanding. But my learning was phenomenal, not just in terms of the course content, of course, but in classroom managing, managing myself and my own kind of anxieties around how much do I share, because I don't want to share everything in case they ask a question. Uh, I need to keep something in reserve. And so that was a really powerful moment and experience. And then I got a job a few years later in Scarborough in community work. Now, Scarborough is an interesting place, generally, an interesting place for a black community worker because they hadn't seen any black faces up in Scarborough for, uh, well, forever, really. And the, the thing that happened, I was assigned to uh, what we were called sink estates, a place called Edge Hill in Scarborough. And within my first six weeks, I think, six weeks in, the Edge Hill was on the uh, A64, a very busy road between Scarborough and York. And I think within six weeks, a child was run over and killed on that road. And obviously it had traumatic impact on the community, but it was also an opportunity for me to engage around, okay, what can we do uh, around this? And to try to do that in a way uh, that, that wasn't ghoulish, that wasn't about, you know, just making something out of a family's grief, but actually, A, supporting the family, and B, uh, providing some ideas of how we could move forward as a, as a community. And that was quite... Uh, quite traumatic and, and did require a lot of deep reflection, deep thought about how we do that. So that was, that was quite, uh, yeah, quite an interesting deep dive, really. Uh, I have to say that the Edge Your Neighbourhood project is still flourishing. That was back in 19 somethings, <laughs> 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 uh, 1973 or something like that. It's a long time ago, but the project is still going strong and I'm still remembered up there in terms of the work that we did and when the estate was redeveloped uh, there is now a road called Spencer Way which is a bit uh, that is very humbling but it came out of this uh, this work I did up there yeah 
Wow, how fantastic. And isn't that the sign of a, a great leader is, is that ability to dive deep? I mean, two phenomenal examples, but so different that would have required you to, to tap into different actions and behaviours and, and learning, really. Thank you for sharing those. On a, on a slightly lighter note, I remember some work that I was doing in, in Greater Manchester. And I worked for the Greater Manchester Council. I was the police community liaison officer. And that role and activity came out of the what people either call the uprisings or the riots of the mid-80s. And um, I was, as I say, employed by the county council, but working essentially alongside the police service. And I had set up community liaison panels and one for each of the areas concerned uh, the, the boroughs in, in Greater Manchester. So there were 10 of them. And one was in Wigan. And the actual place in Wigan was Lee. And I remember going to Lee in order to have conversations with the, the local leaders and community leaders and uh, borough dignitaries and so on. And <laughs> I, I felt at a major disadvantage because what I later discovered after this quite fraught meeting that I was having with them was, first of all, the people of Lee didn't even want to be in Wigan, right, as, a, as an entity. As far as they were concerned, it was Lee Lancashire. Uh, and they certainly didn't want to be in Greater Manchester. And now there was this uh, uh, slip of a lad who also looked nothing like them, sent from County Hall to come and, and, and engage with them. So that was a, yeah, a bit of a baptism by fire, really. And so I always remember... Uh, Lee Lancashire as, uh, yeah, some deep dives into personal resources in order to survive that particular wall of fire. <laughs> Love it. So there are your stories about diving deep. When have you felt like a fish that climbed a tree? Yes. <laughs> uh, most recently, I suppose a couple uh, 18 months ago or two years ago when I, uh, was making my first sourdough loaf. I can still feel the dough on my hands. And uh, I mean, these days I kind of do it and nothing sticks. And, but I have no real, and, and it's, a, it's an important real analogy really, because I have no, I can't describe to you what I did or how I did what I did to move from that first experience of ending up with, you know, dough, everywhere except in the bowl uh, and most of it on my hands to a place where you know now I go and I do the stuff and it's all done you know and I I wipe my hands and and it's and it's sorted back then it was as though how do you do this my lesson from that is that it's sometimes and and this is a I think this is an important thing in the education space it's sometimes quite hard for us to have done something and are now doing something reasonably well to actually articulate what it is that we have done in order to move from that first sourdough loaf to today's situation. As I reflect, I know there's some things I've done. I've, I've done some reading. I, I watched a whole heap of videos I from different people. I was very fastidious in 
noting down what I did, uh, what time, and my ingredients and the weights and so on and so forth. So I was able to reflect back and think, okay, last time I did it this way, I've just heard this video. They said that, oh, that's interesting because I read this book, which said something different. And I read this of it. Mm, what, how, what do I make of all of that input in terms of my situation? And so what I learned from the sourdough bread is that it's great to take account of what's being said and what you've seen and what you're reading and what you're looking at. But at the end of the day, you have to make sense of that in your particular context, in your kitchen, with your ingredients. And I think sometimes in the world of leadership, we are prone to say, that's a really great idea, that worked well over there, I'll take it and translate it here. And then wonder why it blows up in our face. Because actually, we have to adapt and be flexible in terms of our own unique environment and we don't always take account of that so that that was the big learning around that and i suppose most recently in the professional uh, sphere when i've stood up uh, when i stood up for the first time i guess about four or five years ago in front of a bunch of professors at a particular university to uh, facilitate a workshop on inclusive leadership feeling uh, a sense of I'm standing in front of a bunch of academic leaders talking to them about leadership. How weird is that? You know, I really do need to be on my best game today. <laughs> that is probably a whole nother podcast episode. <laughs> but honestly, I, as I said, so wise and what a beautiful metaphor. And I would never have thought of using a metaphor of making sourdough bread for leadership but that that was beautifully done thank you so much so if people want to learn more about you and all the work that you do how can they reach out and connect with you well i think the easiest thing is to check the website limbertspencer.co.uk i'm pretty accessible i i do respond to emails and that's again easy limbert at limbertspencer.co.uk I'm more than happy to engage with people, even happier to facilitate paid programs for people. Um, and I'm passionate about this work because I believe that it matters and that it makes a difference. And I suppose my byline is the, the answer is inclusion. Now, tell me, what was your question? Yeah. I love that. I love that. So I know you're also on, on LinkedIn and you do have a book. It was written quite a while ago now, but Diversity Pocketbook. So I'll put links to that and those in, 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 in the show notes. So it just leaves me to say thank you so much for coming to talk to me. What final words of wisdom would you like to leave the audience with today? Well, let me see that. One from going back to my work in Manchester. Well, I'm going to have two words of wisdom, if I might. One from the word in uh, work in Manchester, which was where I discovered that you can't build bridges during a flood. And that came out of work post-riot, uh, where during the riots and the unrest and the difficulties, all of the different groups that I was engaged with, they were all keen to build bridges. But of course, tensions were 
too high, feelings were running too high. If you like, there was a flood and you can't build a bridge during a flood. Then the waters subsided metaphorically. And I found that I couldn't find anybody who was interested in building a bridge because we didn't need a bridge, allegedly, because we didn't have a flood. Lesson is build the bridge whilst there's no flood because when there's a flood, you can't build the bridge. So that was an important lesson for me. The other one was, well, gosh, in Poland, actually, it's doing some work with the Foreign Office. And this is all about language and concepts and thinking that we are understood by others just because we understand ourselves. A long story short, the new ambassador had been concerned that communication was poor and relationships weren't good with the locally employed staff, the, the Polish residents who worked at the embassy. And so he was very, very clear and very strong to say that he had an open door policy. And I was there running a program. And the end of the first day, the key person from Polish staff, most senior member said to me, look, we are very, very concerned. Uh, we've got some issues that we would like discussed in this development program, inclusion program. So I said, okay, uh, let's pick it up tomorrow morning. Tomorrow morning came. I said, you know, would you like to share the issue with the group? This was the whole leadership of the embassy. She said, yes. So she said, well, we are very, very concerned and don't like this open door policy. And all of us Brits in the room were kind of a bit open mouthed, really. Said, okay, well, can you just say a little bit more about this? Well, she said, the fact that this new ambassador's come in, and the first thing he's done is to say, there's the door. If you're not happy with what's going on, you can leave. And very, very sobering, because two things he and we had not taken account of. Firstly, the actual context, and the context was one of unhappiness, disgruntlement, frustration. Okay. And secondly, using a kind of uh, metaphor that only made sense if you are English speaking as a first language. Why would they understand what an open door policy is? I mean, if English isn't your first language and you've not been told what that means, why would you understand it? And then you put that against the backdrop of unhappiness, disgruntlement, frustration. Not surprised, they thought. There's the door. If you're not happy, you can leave. So being careful about metaphors and context is a really important thing for us all to be doing as we move forward. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Dive Deep, Climb High podcast with me, Mel Luizu. To help build our community of leadership listeners, please leave me an Apple Podcast five-star review. Remember, our fishy adventure doesn't have to end here. Connect with me on LinkedIn, Instagram and Twitter. Links are in the show notes. Dive deep, climb high, can-do leadership in a world of can't.